Hello and welcome to the Roots and Foundations podcast. I'm Jeremy Manuel. And I'm Nicole Carlin. Today we are doing the first part of the book of Samuel. Now, if you're following along in your English Bibles, you'll notice that we're not following the order of, of many of the Bibles that you would find at church or probably sold to you from any you know store that you'd be buying a Bible from. And that's because we're following the Tanakh order, which is the Hebrew order of the Bible. And we'd normally ex expect the book of Ruth, but instead it would be it's the book of 1 Samuel that we are going to be looking at today. And we haven't gotten rid of Ruth. We're just going to, in essence, come to Ruth later in the order in the section of the Old Testament books in the order, the Hebrew order called the writings. And yes. so that's just going to come a little later. Yeah, that's just a, a different organizational decision there. And the book of First Samuel is actually kind of part one of the book of Samuel. Um, the only reason why we have numbers in front of, of these books is because the original um, scrolls weren't big enough to hold all of Samuel. All of Samuel, yeah, that that they just weren't big enough, so they brought broke them up into part two parts. Um, so this is just first part of Samuel, and then second Samuel is just the second part of Samuel. So that's kind of where we will be looking at today is just the the first part. Yeah, and it's interesting we've we've moved chronologically that we're we're kind of tracking along chronologically here. We've come to the end of the period of Judges, and if you recall. The period of Judges was this, in essence, about three, 400 year period of time where they enter into the Promised Land. They're supposed to be conquering the Promised Land. Uh, however, they run into some problems pretty rapidly with not being obedient to God, losing sight of God. And as these various kind of tribal chiefs or judges are raised up to lead them, um, as the people move further and further away from the instructions they were given by Moses, the way that they were called to live, the way that they were invited to move into the promised land and displace the Canaanite, the Canaanites who had kind of sinned in such egregious ways that God had determined to displace the Canaanites. And he was going to do that through the Israelites while giving them this land. They began to look like the Canaanites. They began to behave like the Canaanites and worship the Canaanite gods and commit the same sins. And it kind of degenerates. And so really, the way we looked at Judges was this is this book is like it needs a warning on it. It's a warning label because it's disturbing. The stories are graphic and distressing, and they're not stories about what we ought to do as God's people. They are cautionary tales about what happens when you forget who God is and who you are in relationship to him. And so Israel ends up in this place where they need something, and they just, they come up with a plan. Yeah. And so 1 Samuel kind of starts off with the kind of, it's been called the last judge in, in some, some classes I've taken, or just the, the Samuel anyway. Um, it kind of starts off with, with his story before we kind of get to Israel's solution to their, 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 what they think the solution to their problem is. And it starts off kind of with Hannah, really, and, and the, fan, the, the parents of Samuel. And it's interesting that there's some parallels from the beginning of this story to the beginning of, of the book of Sam, or like the story of Samson and Judges. That like that there's this kind of miraculous birth, that there's this kind of dedication of the son to the Lord in, in various ways. Only Samuel winds up being a lot more of a positive figure than Samson could ever dream of. But at the same time, we kind of have this, this prayer of, of Hannah's. It kind of the Bible Project kind of sets it up as this prayer setting up the themes for like really the whole book of, of at least 1 Samuel and, and possibly the whole the whole book of Samuel. It's this idea that when she prays 
for this son, you know, because she's she's barren. She doesn't have any sons, and she's longing for a son. Her her husband is married to another woman who's giving him lots of children, but she is unable to, and so she's very distraught. So she prays this prayer and is answered. And as part of the celebration, whenever she comes to dedicate Samuel and and hand him over to his to the work of the Lord, she she sings this prayer, prays this prayer, and it's this idea of God opposing the proud and exalting the humble, that that despite human evil, God's at work. And this kind of final one that we don't see quite as much in Samuel, um, pushed as much, but this idea that God will eventually raise up a messianic king. And so these themes are kind of present within the book of Samuel and is is kind of the way that at least the Bible project uses to kind of show the kind of themes of the book. And if we remember that the word Tanakh, which we're using the Tanakh order, which is the way the Hebrews organized these stories and writings, is that the T stands for the Torah, which is the law, and the the N stands for Nevi'im, which is the prophetic writings. Mm -hmm. And so we definitely have Samuel operating as a prophet Mm -hmm. um, as well as a leader. And he really does exemplify a, a much more successful following of the Lord than Samson. Yeah. So, yeah. So he ends up in this situation of serving in the temple with, or excuse me, the tabernacle. tabernacle. Yeah. yeah. We haven't tabernacle. got to the tem- temple No temple yet. yet. Um, the tabernacle with Eli, who is the high priest at the time. Yeah. Or it doesn't quite lay out what exactly his title is, but they kind of get the sense that that's what he is. Yeah. It's kind of interesting that they Chief don't. Chief priest. <laughs> yeah, they don't really yeah. give those details. He's it's just kind of a priest. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating to me, like that they don't really spell out his role. His role, as much as you might think, he kind of seems to operate as this chief priest figure, but it's not. I don't think it's actually said explicitly said. Um, and Eli has a problem. Well, yeah, two <laughs> two problems, um, which is his sons, and they are not listening to their father, yeah. um, and are in essence behaving wickedly. And in, and so setting up a comparison mm-hmm. to this young Samuel who is behaving in a much more faithful way. Yeah. Because even before Samuel's kind of around or at least old enough to really be viewed as, as good or bad and know where, which way he's going, the sons of Eli have this bad reputation. They Even among the people, it's not just like, oh, God's like, oh, you guys are. But even among the people, they're like known to be kind of shady individuals, so to speak. They, they kind of cheat on the offerings. They take people's offerings before they've even been burnt. And, and they've been sleeping with the women outside the tent of the meeting. And like it's just kind of that they're kind of flagrantly disrespectful to the whole whole system that God put into place and everybody really knows it. And it's interesting because that's something that you see, and this is one of those places where the Bible really does illuminate human nature, that often children who grow up in a position of privilege or who do not have to, in essence, uh, are not part of the process of, of how you got there, there's this pattern of sons or, or daughters not valuing what they've been given because they were not a part of this process or just that they have kind of always had access to privilege and they don't value it. So it's just interesting that we sort of see that, which is something we can see to this day, it being played out here in the nation of, of Israel so so long ago. Yeah, it just goes to show that just because the parents are godly or faithful as, as much as they can be, it does not mean that the kids will follow in their footsteps of even, you know, seeing Samuel as kind of this counterexample. Later on, it's even his sons 
that are kind of maybe not as bad as the sons of Eli, but they're definitely noted by the people as being like, they don't follow the Lord like Samuel does. So, so even Samuel has his sons kind of, um, not be as faithful. And so it's interesting. It makes you wonder if when uh, a father figure is in a, po- a position of great power and lots of responsibility, his absence hmm. as a result of his responsibilities leaves his children sort of figuring things out uh, on their own. And that can possibly be part of the problem. Yeah. None of which is explained. It's no. just more of this interesting pattern that you yeah. see throughout Scripture where a, a good father does not guarantee um, righteous children. Yeah. I mean, even saw it with judges, with like Gideon, you know, where, you know, Gideon may have just been okay, but then you have his son, which is just horrible. You know, like, even if you don't view Gideon as necessarily the highest standard of faithfulness, like his son definitely kind of, or one of his sons anyway, just really drops off the deep end and and does some horrible things. So, yeah, you kind of see that just because a parent is faithful to God or views God highly doesn't necessarily mean that your kid's... Yeah, they're well, definitely, and, and biblically, there's sort of these instructions that you're supposed to be telling your kids the, the stories of faithfulness, you know, when you lie down and when you rise up and when you lo- walk along the road. It, this idea that there's supposed to be this ongoing conversation that happens all the time between the parent and the children about who God is and what that means. And it makes you wonder if perhaps those conversations in these households where these people had great responsibilities, they weren't, they weren't having these conversations. These kids weren't hearing what yeah. was what. Yeah, it's hard to say what, what exactly is going on there. But it's, it's kind of one of those interesting things to kind of note. Like, I think sometimes in a church it gets taught, like, well, if you just do the, you know, if you're just faithful, if you just do the right things and everything will be fine with your kids. And, and the Bible really doesn't back that up entirely, you know, yeah. by, by the examples and the stories we hear. It's, that's the ideal. And that would be kind of if everything goes right and <laughs> your kids are, are receptive, then, then yeah, that's the way it should go. But that's not a guaranteed way of, of. No, no. And there's definitely like, I mean, even as you go forward, uh, you know, as we move on, mm-hmm. David's sons have all kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. Solomon's sons just, you know, basically undo all of the. <laughs> nation building that was done and split the kingdom in half. And so there's, yeah, there just continues to be this. And and then as we go through the divided kingdom, as we move on through the prophets, we're going to see an ongoing that you might have a decent king here and there, but their sons almost always sort of <laughs> rapidly undo, undo whatever yeah. good the father did. So it's an interesting question. I mean, I probably one that's a valuable conversation within the context of the church because mm-hmm. we love our kids. And we want them to do well. And what can we learn? Mm. You know, what does it look like? What What were the factors and people like? You know, why was Samuel a faithful man? Why Why did David grow up? And I think it actually interestingly brings us right back square onto this theme of pride versus humility. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, if you're a child of a position of power, you're full of pride. Mm. Um, and that may be, you know, one of those places where as the community thinking about how do we grapple with pride and humility today? Because they definitely continue to be <laughs> human issues, yes. for sure. Yes, pride and humility are, are rather significant issues. And I think that every generation has had to deal with them maybe in their own manifestations, but it's just kind of, it's something that's just part of who we are as humans to have to kind of struggle with pride and humility and, and that whole balance. But we see this play out as with the sons of Eli and, and Samuel, like the sons of Eli are prideful and even to the point of like where they kind of think that they can use God to further their own 
um, advances. Um, particularly, the Philistines are around, and they've started to kind of attack Israel and take over some of the, the some of the cities. And they think that just by bringing out the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that was supposed to represent God's presence in the tabernacle, that if they take that out with them, the battle, that their victory is guaranteed. That they, you know, they'll win. All they have to do is take out this this artifact and, and they've got it in the bag. But it doesn't work that way. The, the battle fails. They wind up dying in the battle, which then results in Eli's death. Whenever he hears the news of his sons, he falls off his chair and breaks his neck. And it's it's just kind of a mess of a, of a situation. But the Ark's captured in the, in the midst of it. And it, it's just kind of this, this mess of a situation. They thought that they had God all figured out. They could just kind of manipulate him however they wanted, and it it didn't really work out for them Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant's their lucky rabbit's foot. And they're going to carry, you know, they're not going to change their socks because they want to win. And so they try to treat God like he's a lucky charm. A lucky charm, yeah. And that definitely does not work. No. And so, yeah, it kind of winds up being this mess. They die, the Ark's stolen, and... But the Ark doesn't stay gone for, for super long. The Philistines find out that God really is with the Ark and sends plagues and tumors and rats and all kinds of fun things to them and they kind of are like yeah we we don't want to we don't want this anymore. we don't want this anymore they even put the first thing they do was put it in one of their temples to one of their gods and of course they have figures and idols in their temples and they kept on having the 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 idol bowing down to, to they the kept ark. finding it every morning laying down in front of the ark as if in worship and they were kind of baffled as to yeah, how before the happen. elf in the shelf there was the dagon like yes <laughs> bowing down to the bowing down to the ark and 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 i think and maybe the the most important thing about the book of first the, the this book of samuel first and second is that these are stories this is narrative yeah if you haven't read it or if you haven't read in a while, read it. Because there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of nuances to the story. And really our purpose is more to kind of highlight the thematic mm-hmm. because they're just there's too many good stories in there for us to kind of cover all And there's also some pretty messy stories that, that yes. pick up from right from, you know, the pages of judges, you know, like stories that, that you're just like, What in the world is going on here? Yes. And yeah, so it's just yeah, you, you can give yourself a, a, a gold star when you hit the golden tumors, golden rat part, and you say, oh, that's what they were talking about, golden tumors and golden rats. But yeah. we won't explain what that all was, but it's in there. Trust us. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, but then you have Samuel kind of, Samuel as uh, the opposite of that, whereas, like, the Philistines are still an issue when Samuel's older and following God. But, like, instead of this idea of using God as this, you know, lucky charm or using the ark as kind of this thing, instead he tells the people to kind of focus inwards, to, like, get rid of their idols, to get rid of all these things that they've been worshiping in place of God and return to him, to return to God, to follow him again. It's much more of this internal thing that, that the people's needing to turn to God rather than God being trotted out as this kind of lucky charm. And so it's that kind of idea of humility, of, of saying that, you know, we're not doing things right rather than, like, well, we can do whatever we want, and use God however we, we choose, because we're the ones in control. So it's that idea of who's really in control here. And the result is the Lord delivers the Philistines to the Israelites, and they're able to be victorious with this kind of game plan going on that, you know, and it's even done kind of without Israel's strength, you know, like they're, they're getting ready to gather and like do this sacrifice. And the Philistines know about it and kind of are going to attack them during this. And the Lord sends a thunderstorm. And there's all kinds of crazy things that kind of go on there. And then Israel is able to chase them and, and kind of finish them finish them out. And and so there's no confusion yeah. as to who is the power 
winning this battle. Yeah. That is clearly the Lord. Um, and that's sort of the mindset that Samuel, that's, that's sort of how Samuel demonstrates faithfulness is mm-hmm. that he recognizes God as the, the leader of Israel. But the people, even after this victory, still don't quite understand fully. Yeah. Um, and they want something. <laughs> they want a king. Like everybody else in the block. Yes. All the other kids have kings. Why don't we have a king? Which I think is an interesting aspect of like, because like there's been things about kings ever since, you know, the Torah. Like God mentions the idea of like there when there's a king or whatever. But like the idea has kind of been that, you know, you really shouldn't have one. And as we saw with Judges, it's kind of the story of how Israel became more and more like everybody around them. And here they are pretty much like... Yes. Relishing that idea. It's like, oh, well, we want to be like everyone else around us. We don't want to be this kind of unique people that you've that you've made us. And because their king is the Lord, Mm -hmm. but not. But you see, if we kind of cast our mind back to Exodus and when God was telling Moses, don't let the people rush up the mountain to see me. And the people are like, forget it. We don't want that. Mm -hmm. You go talk to them for us, Moses. The people have always asked for an intermediary. There's someone to stand in that place rather than being able to fully see this calling to be the people that stand in that space. God not distant from them, but near to them. Um, and so they decide a human king is the solution to all their problems. At least they think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then, then we see this kind of second comparison within First Samuel of this idea of, of pride versus humility. And that's between Saul and, and David. So Saul's the, the king that winds up being chosen first and he's everything that they thought they wanted you know he's tall he's good looking kingly material if you've got the vision of of a king in your mind that was that was it and he starts out decent he has some victories and and seems to be going in the right direction until he's not and then that idea of pride kind of comes into where he starts kind of saying, oh, well, you know what? We could do it the way God's let us know, but no, we're going to do it just a little bit differently. And he's got reasons for why he's doing what he's doing, but God doesn't really buy it. Buy it. Yeah. <laughs> and he's he's kind of, you kind of see his descent starting out very mildly. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't He doesn't just jump off the deep end into sinful behavior. Instead, he really begins to believe the hype that he is the king. And if understanding kingship at that time, most kings saw themselves as divine or semi-divine. And that meant that they had the latitude to do whatever they wanted and no one could question their judgment. Mm. Um, you know, there's this idea that, you know, if you gave an order, it couldn't be rescinded because you were divine. And if you said it, it was, you know, and so Saul is kind of surrounded by these ideas and they seem to start to penetrate his heart in such a way that he he starts to kind of be like, well, yeah, I, but I was doing this as if my, you know, from Saul's point of view, my judgment is the equivalent of God's judgment. My judgment is just as good if it, you know, sure, Samuel, God might have said that, but I've decided to do this. And that kind of subtle shift just begins to accelerate um, his kind of demise as a good leader. Yeah. And it's these two times of disobedience, and they're kind of marked out in 1 Samuel 13 and 15. Those chapters are kind of where. And it's interesting that, you know, Saul always has an excuse, a reason for what he's doing. And he doesn't really say that he's sorry. It's just kind of like, well, I was just doing it, you know, I, I gave the offering when I wasn't supposed to because, 
you were late, Samuel. So I, I, we needed the victory. So I just did it because, you know, I didn't destroy all the goods like God told me to in this one battle because there was good sheep and good cattle and I was going to bring them to the tabernacle and sacrifice them to God. Like, you know, he's not really sorry. He's just got these kind of ready. He's not repenting. Yes. And, and making it like recognizing, okay, I, I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Instead, with this justification, he continues to set himself up as the arbiter and not submitting himself to God's leadership. Whereas it's entirely possible that had he continued um, to sort of say, oh, you know, if he, or if he had gone in a different direction and said, oh, you know what, that was wrong. Lord, mm-hmm. please forgive me. God's favor might have remained with him because the, he would have been demonstrating that he understood who was really in charge. Yeah. Because, I mean, as we'll see with pretty much all the leaders of Israel, the ones we've already gone over and the ones that we have yet to go over, none of them are perfect. None of them do everything right. And we'll see that even with kind of the the, the positive comparison with David as being the, the kind of model of humility, particularly for 1 Samuel, that he goes off the deep end on certain things too. And like, But it's the idea that like whenever the wrong is done, do you justify yourself and set yourself above what God is doing? Or is there repentance and a, and a kind of idea of, of remorse and being sorry for what you've done? And that seems to be really what sets apart a, a faithful ruler from an unfaithful ruler. It's not that you did everything perfect. It's this idea of, are you able to recognize your own sin? Are you able to humble yourself before God and others to admit your own wrongdoing? And that really seems to be what God is looking for is people who are able to see their wrongdoing, not people who do everything or or try to at least put the outward veneer of doing everything right. Like that's not really what God seems to be looking for even way back here. Yeah. And so we end up here with, in essence, between chapter eight and chapter 31, this is this flow of Saul becoming king and then Saul losing God's favor mm-hmm. and God raising up David yeah. and David moving towards becoming fully king over Israel. And it's not a, a straight linear no. process. You kind of get the sense that Saul has some chances to change his course and to make amends. And he continues to not do that. And then um, once David is kind of anointed by God and given favor, you really see Saul wanting David dead, that the jealousy and the pride just continue to build to, to where he's identified as fun, functionally mad. He, mm-hmm. he goes insane with the idea that he's lost his position of power, which is really interesting. Like if you go back and you read the first couple of verses where you first meet Saul versus the descriptions of Saul at the end, there's, they're wildly different. Yeah. Like he really is like a different man and he really has lost his, his grounding in God. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so you have you have Saul, and again, just like the the, the sons of Eli, Saul it meets a bad end at, at at the end of it all. He he battling the Philistine jet again and winds up dying in the battle. He basically you know falls on his own sword to avoid getting captured by the Philistines or be killed by them or or whatever would have happened to him if they got him. Whereas David's trajectory is is, is very different. You know, he's anointed as the the king while Saul is still king. And this is kind of unique because whenever you see his being anointed, when Samuel goes and looks for him, he's the last one to be seen. He's the youngest son. And the idea of the youngest being king is one of those things. It's fairly common biblical idea, but in the cultural idea, it wouldn't be the first thing people would think of. So, so it's kind of this, the humble 
humblest of the families being exalted to the role of king. You know, we know the story of David and Goliath, where David has faith in God to deliver him from this, you know, giant warrior of a man and come out victorious. So, like, all these things that David's doing is kind of this reliance on God. Even when Saul is trying to kill him, and, and David's anointed by God, like, David refuses to kill Saul himself because Saul is king. He's been anointed by God. And it's just kind of interesting of, like, that he's putting himself kind of, even though he's also been anointed, that's not his ticket to just do whatever he wants, um, which is interesting and not something that David always does keep to. Yeah, and again, there. this is another one of those places where we are familiar with pieces of this story, mm-hmm. but not necessarily the story as a flow. And so it's really important to kind of read it as a, an arc of what, how Saul rises to power and then descends into madness and ultimately dies, and that David rises to power, and then 2 Samuel picks that story up with mm-hmm. his fall from grace and then his different choices, which don't relieve him of all responsibility, do not relieve him of all the consequences, because his choices are pretty egregious, mm-hmm. um, but that it, it allows him to still remain um, f- in relationship with God because he's recognizing where he's gone wrong. Whereas what we see with Saul is Saul never fully grasps what he's done wrong. Yeah. He really just... It continues to be enraged at how it, it fun- functionally it's it's not fair. It's not fair. This is not what should be happening. I, I you know how how dare you know David? How dare God? And there's just sort of this sense of you know. And it, by the end, he's he's willing to try to raise Samuel from the dead through witchcraft to try to get insight into what in the world is going on. Like Jeremy was saying, this really is sort of the structure of the the book of Samuel is this contrast between humility and pride. And Hannah's song back in chapter one really sort of kind of lays that out for us as we go through this. Yeah, which I think, I mean, it's not just for for Samuel. I mean, I think it's kind of an overarching theme really throughout scripture. And it's one that that I've noticed more and more the last, I don't know, three or four years, like of just that idea of, of humility and how important that really seems to be to God and how pride usually just causes trouble. I mean, even with judges, the people saw they did whatever they wanted to in their own eyes, whatever was good in their own eyes. It wasn't anything to do with, with God. It was this idea of, of pride, of, of human pride, of that taking over anything else. And I mean, even like, you know, come to Jesus and the Pharisees, the idea that they thought they had everything good, that they were were wonderful and Jesus is like, no, I mean, he compares some things like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but inside you're just dead. And like, that's not really what I'm looking for. Well, and also it, it, an echo of Hannah's song, because Hannah was waiting and waiting for mm-hmm. a child. But Mary, Mary is not expecting a child yet as we kind of yeah. jump forward in time. But in the Magnificat or the song that Mary sings when she finds out, you know, she says he's brought down rulers from his thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. Mm-hmm. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants to ever, forever, even as he said to our fathers. And it's this idea that he has done great things for the humble. Yeah. And this idea that the lowly get lifted up. And we that is definitely... Yeah, and you see that in the, the Beatitudes, you know, blessed is the poor. You know, like meek. all these things that, 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 you know, tend to not be looked highly upon in our culture, you know, where it's, I mean, and it's never really been looked on, I don't think, highly in too many cultures. You know, our culture is just a continued example of that, of it's, you know dog eat dog, you you know, you get what you earn and, you know, like, it's it's all about, you know, you 
So it is, it is, it is an interesting challenge. So our encouragement to you is to pull out your Bible and open up to, to Samuel and start reading and hear the story through the lens of, uh, as a prophetic writing, which it's giving us the history of Israel. Mm-hmm. It's helping us understand the, who King David was for real, not just a kind of cardboard cutout or a flannel graph King David, but the real person. We really get a lot of information about David. There's a lot of chapters about him and a lot of details about his child, like his young adulthood, and then his rise to power and how he behaved. And then the second part of Samuel and second Samuel, we're going to hear more about what goes on all the way sort of to the, the end of his life. And that, again, helps us to see what what is God looking for in a leader? What is God asking of, of each of us? Because th- he's he's fairly consistent. <laughs> We're not, but he is in the sense that he is consistent in his desire to have relationship with us uh, in which we recognize his leadership and submit to that. And that when we kind of lose our way, we are quick to repent and sort of say we're sorry and be ready to kind of see where he's going to take us next, knowing that that humble heart means, in essence, all things can be restored. All things can be made new when we remain in the context of that relationship. So, so yeah. Yeah. So that's our take on First Samuel. And as we've said, like, there's a lot of narrative here, lots of stories that we just don't have the time to cover. And so it's really one of those books that it should be fairly easy read in some ways because it's, it's, it's just kind of one big story. There's, there's parts in it that are still kind of like, but at the same time like it's this idea of of looking at pride and humility woven through it and how god's still at work even though there's some yucky things going on in the in the the pages of the story so yeah so that's first samuel and we'll take a look at, at second samuel next week and yeah so we'll hope you enjoy